How many of you have, have learned in life that there are people who like to plan it all out and there are people who like to play it by ear? Right? Plan it out, play it by ear. How many of you are plan it out people? How many of you are play it by ear people? Yeah, most of you married each other. Isn't that fun how that, isn't that fun how it works? I'm a plan it all out person. Like, I, I like plans. I like a good plan. And uh, I remember when we were expecting our first child, Lilia, who's 11 now, people would ask, are you going to find out the gender of the baby? And I was like, of course. Of course, why wouldn't I? Like, I'm a planner. Like, I need to know, right? We need to get the nursery ready. We need to pick a name. We need to get her clothes ready. And I know not everybody does that, but that's what, that's what with all three of our girls, we found out because we're, we're planners. And, and people try to convince me to wait. They're like, no, it's, it's, it'll be a great surprise. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's going to be plenty of surprises <laughs> when I watch my wife give birth. I don't need any additional surprises. And so I'm a planner, my wife is a planner, and as a result, we're raising three little planners. They're all planners, which is great, but it's also really annoying, if I'm honest, because the one thing a planner does not want is other people questioning their plans all the time. And when you have little kids in your home that are planners, that's like their full-time job, is to question your plan. Dad, what are we doing? When are we doing it? Where are we going to go? What are we going to eat? I'm like, girls, look at me. Have I ever missed a meal in my life? You're going to eat. Like, relax. You're going to, you're going to, we're going to, we got a plan. And, and they love asking me about my plans, and it drives me a little bit crazy. Uh, this morning, as we're continuing in our series through the book of James, James, since our first Sunday in January, James has been challenging us, hasn't he? He's confronting us, and I warned you in week one that James would make us uncomfortable. Here's some of the things we've learned so far. James said, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Don't play favorites. James rebuked the church for favoritism, for preferring some people over others. James said, your works reveal your faith. What you do reveals what you really believe. He said, your words, what you say, reveals your heart. And Pastor Jason taught us that, that wisdom is something we can't give to ourselves, that we need God's wisdom. And last week, Pastor Mark taught us the idea and the truth that our external conflict comes from our internal conflict. So James has been confronting us and challenging us, and he does it again this morning. And this is a particularly challenging passage for people who are like me, who like to plan and plan it out. So let's look together at this text in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What is that? That's a plan. James is like, Come on, you plan makers, come here. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. You can see why this passage rattled me a little bit when I first read it as a planner. But I want to say up front before we get into our, the main points of the message that God is not against planning. He's not against planning. God is a planner. In fact, God told his prophet Jeremiah, actually he was speaking to Israel through his prophet Jeremiah, he said, I know the plans I have for you. God has plans for you. Your days are written out in his book. He, he, he has plans for you. Before he laid the foundations of this world, before time even existed, God had a plan to rescue humanity and renew all of creation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
God's not winging it. He's not playing it by ear. He's not making it up as he goes. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. He's not a God of confusion. So God is not against planning. So all the planners just exhale. It's okay. But there is a type of planning that God says we have to be careful about. We need to be wary about. And it can actually uh, negatively affect our lives and our hearts. And there's three characteristics of planning or plans that James tells us to watch out for. And the first one is this, plans that are too sure. Too sure. This person, it seems innocent enough, they say today or tomorrow we're going to go into such such a town and we're going to stay there for a year, we're going to set up shop, we're going to do business, we're going to make a profit. But what's being revealed here is the overconfidence and the self-dependence of this person. That they trust in their plans more than they trust in God's will. That they believe that their plans and the things that they've sort of charted out for themselves actually determine what will happen. And James shows us that this person thinks that they have power over four things that no human being actually has power over. And the first one is time. He says today or tomorrow. We don't have power over today or tomorrow, really. Power over location. We'll go to such and such a town. We don't know what's going to happen. Power over the duration of the business. We'll spend a year there. Power over the outcome. We'll make a profit. What this person is operating under is the illusion of control. And see, the problem isn't planning. The issue isn't planning. The problem is presuming. Presuming that I know best. Presuming that if I do X, Y, and Z, then this will happen for me. Presuming that I can control the future with my planning. Presuming that I don't need to seek God's will for my future because I got a plan. And James wants to shake us out of our certainty and out of our sureness. And so then he hits us in the mouth in verse 14 with something we all know is true but we don't really want to think about with this question. What is your life? What is your life? And then he compares our life, the nerve. He compares our life to a morning mist. This is what he said. You heard me read it. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Thanks, James, right? This is why you don't have friends, James. This is why Hallmark's not asking you to write greeting cards for them. You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. And here's what James is telling us, and we all know it's true, and every now and then we get slapped in the face with it, but we don't like to think about it, is that we're always one tragedy, one diagnosis, one moment, one accident, one situation away from not having any of the power we thought we had and our plans being worthless. It's the brevity of life James is talking about. We've been reminded about it in, our, in the news lately, haven't we? The coronavirus and with Kobe and Gigi and the other seven on the helicopter. Those moments, they, they, they confront us with the, the frailty of what it means to be human, the fragility of human life, and the fact that even the best laid plans in just a moment, they're, they're gone. And James is warning us about plans that are too sure. You know what I love about the Bible is the Bible, whatever you think of it, it is certainly this. The Bible is unrelentingly honest about this topic. The Bible, this, here's, here's what the psalmist David said in, in Psalms. He said, my days are like an evening shadow. My days pass away like smoke. You've made my, my, uh, you've made my days a few hand breaths, which means just as long as a couple hands together. He says, as for humans, their days are like the grass. The grass sprouts, it greens, it withers, and it's gone. Job, an Old Testament character, said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. 
whatever that means. But if, you're, if you've, have you ever seen a weaver shuttle, then you know what it means. And then he says, my days are swifter. They go faster than a runner. I assume he means like a good runner, right? Not me, because my running looks a lot more like a casual walk. But what he's, what he's teaching us here is that our days go so fast. And we feel like we're planning for things that seem so important and so permanent and so certain. But someday, James is saying, we're all going to be gone. He's not telling us this because he's morbid or to depress us. He's telling us this because he's trying to, as the psalmist says, he's trying to teach us to number our days so that we can have a heart of wisdom. In other words, don't be confident in yourself. Don't be confident in your plans, but trust in God. You know what happens when we don't trust in God, when we don't trust in his plans, when we don't trust in his will? You know what, we ha- you know what happens to us? We live our lives in tomorrow. We miss today because we're living in tomorrow. Listen, we all know what that feels like, right? To live, to put all your energy, all your strength, all your focus, all your anxieties in tomorrow. And James is asking us to trust in God. The problem he's saying here is not planning. Listen, the problem is not planning for tomorrow. The problem is preoccupation with tomorrow, right? The problem is not planning for tomorrow. The problem is preoccupation with tomorrow and an overconfidence and a self-dependence that says, if I got the right plans, then things will go my way. James is saying, not so fast. Now, if this is you, if you're a planner and you've made plans that are very sure, here's what happens. If, if, you, if, if your plans don't go your way, if they don't work out perfectly, you'll lose your joy. You'll lose your temper. You will, um, you'll hate, you'll, you'll be angry with anybody who questions your plans. Uh, you will critique everybody else's plans. You'll demand that other people adapt to your plan. You'll be inflexible. You'll be hard to live with. You'll be hard to work with. You'll be quick to dismiss other people's perspective. You won't be teachable. And you'll see every interruption on your plans as, a per- as an attack on your personal happiness. And you'll miss the opportunity to see that sometimes God says in- sends interruptions to us as part of his will for us. When you study the Gospels, there's so many things that Jesus did on the way to the thing he was doing. So many times that God interrupted even Jesus' day. Think about it. Jesus is traveling not to Samaria, but through Samaria. And he gets interrupted by a woman at the well. And her life is changed. And the village that she goes to, their lives are changed because of that interruption. Jesus is on his way to, to, to pray for a young boy who's sick. And a woman with an issue of blood for many years crawls through the crowd and grabs onto Jesus and interrupts. And Jesus doesn't say, what is this interruption? Keep, he stops, right? As Jesus is walking through towns to minister, as blind people cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is what it means to shift from having plans that are too sure to trusting God's will, is that when you, not every interruption is seen as something that's offensive to you or a threat to your personal happiness or the way that you think your day should go. So that when I get on a plane to fly somewhere, and this is, I'm just being honest with you, when I get on a plane, all I want to do is get my headphones on, listen to music, or watch something on my phone. I'm not looking for conversation. I'm not going on a plane looking to make friends. But every now and then I sit down next to somebody who is. And they want to talk. And they want to have a conversation. They want to tell me their life story. And they want to tell me about their job. And they want to tell me about my family. And all I'm thinking is interruption, interruption, interruption. And what if God is interrupting me and my plans because he has a plan for that person? And I'm a part of those plans. It's arrogance to think that we know best. Only God knows best. And James says, instead of saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, without any consideration for God's will, we should say, if God wills this, 
God willing, I will do this. Now, I actually know some people who they live that out very literally. Like they say all the time, God willing, at the end of sentences. I don't think James is saying we have to do that. You can if you want. There's nothing wrong with it. But James is not saying this is a phrase you have to repeat. He's saying this is a heart attitude you have to possess. Yeah, make your plans, please. I think planning is good. Make your plans, but trust in God. Don't trust in your plans. Make your plans, but when God wants to interrupt, don't fight against God's work and his will in that moment. Plans that are too sure. The second thing that James warns us about here are plans that are too selfish, self-absorbed. James is writing these words to Christian merchants in the church who are traveling and saying, we're going to go to this town and we're going to make a profit. And there's nothing wrong with profit. James is, again, he's not against profit. He's not talking about profit. He's talking about priorities. What do you prioritize and what do you value the most? And, and here's the problem that James has with these plans that these people are making. The only question they're asking is this. What's best for me? What makes the most sense for me? Making life decisions through the filter of the world's values and my personal will. Here's the questions that most people ask themselves when they have to make big decisions, whether it's about a job, whether it's about a relationship, whether it's about uh, a location. They'll ask questions like this. What will make me happiest? What will make me most financially secure? What will advance my career? What moves me closer to realizing the American dream? What gives me the most status in, in, in society and the most standing? What moves me closer to the corner office? What brings me the most ease, comfort, and convenience? That's really what, those are the questions most people ask when they have to make big decisions about where to go and what to do with their lives. And there's nothing inherently evil or wrong with those questions and actually, there's probably some wisdom sometimes in asking some of those questions. But here's what James is warning us against. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, if your citizenship is in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of earth, then you've got to ask other questions also. You can't just ask the same questions that people of the kingdom of this world are asking, looking out for themselves. You've got to ask questions like this. God, what do you want from me? How can I follow you? How can I serve you? What are you asking of me? Yeah, God, I see this is a great opportunity, but this, is this the right opportunity? How will this opportunity affect my ability to serve other people? How can I steward this opportunity so that I can see your kingdom come and your will be done? Here's a big question. How will this help me live on mission, serving you? How will this keep my heart pure? Trusting him with our lives. And let me talk to parents in the room for a moment. It's one thing to trust God with our lives, but... It's so hard, isn't it, to trust God with our children's lives? And, and, and we got, I, got, I got three girls, 11, 9, and 6 now. And I got plans for their lives. I got plans for lives. It involves not dating until they're 25. <laughs> it, it, it involves playing the instruments I play, loving the sports I love, you know, eating sushi with me. Like, it, I got all kinds of plans for my daughters. But the truth is, is that I have to trust that God's plans for my daughters are better than mine that he actually knows better, that he sees better, and that he actually cares more. And, and, and I know the thought of like, what if God wants to send one of my daughters to the other side of the world to live on mission and serve a community of people where their life is in danger, to go over to the Middle East or go, end up in a communist country and, and, and spreading the gospel in a place where they're, they're under persecution? What if God, like, I, I don't want to sign my daughters up for that if I'm honest with you. But here's what I know. Your child on the other side of the world in the middle of God's will is safer than they are in your house and out of God's will. 
And so parents, we are in the constant, and grandparents, and aunts and uncles, and wherever you're at this morning, we're in the constant battle of opening up our hands with our kids, aren't we? God, I trust you. Yeah, I got sure plans for my kids, and actually I probably have some selfish plans for my kids, but I want your plans for my kids. I want to trust you with them. James's warning is against a selfish worldview that ignores God, his will, and his kingdom. Listen, in the Bible, there's so many examples of people who made selfless choices instead of selfish choices. Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of Israel, he left the comfort of the known. He left his people. He left the world that he knew to follow God to a place that God said, I'll show you when we get there. He didn't even know where he was going. Moses left the palace for the wilderness. Joseph chose the forgiveness of his brothers over revenge for the past pain they brought to him. The three Hebrew boys chose faithfulness to God in a foreign land, even if it meant facing a fiery furnace. Daniel chose obedience to God over safety from a lion's den. Esther chose risking her life over hiding behind her crown. Ruth chose becoming a refugee in a new land over abandoning her mother-in-law and staying home. And Jesus chose coming to earth humbling himself, living as one of us, dying like none of us could possibly imagine dying. Why? So that he might rescue us and save us. Jesus chose the cross over heaven for you and for me. Selfless choices advance the kingdom of God. And selfish choices only advance our personal kingdoms. And you know this, or maybe you know this, but only one kingdom will stand forever. Study history. People thought, ah, oh, Persia, they're going to last forever. Babylon, no one can ever destroy them. Rome, too powerful, can't be taken down. But if history teaches us one thing, is that empires rise and they fall and they rise and they fall and kingdoms come and go, but only the kingdom of God will endure and last forever. So build for the kingdom that lasts. How are your choices and your plans revealing a heart that's growing more and more selfless? Now, if you struggle with this, and I think we all do, making plans that are too selfish. Uh, here's some things that will happen in your life. You will see anyone and anything um, in your way as a threat to fight against or an obstacle to avoid. You will hurt others and you'll use others to get what you think you need most. You'll, you'll use manipulative plans to benefit yourself. And also, if, you're, if, you're, if, if your plans are too selfish, you'll never give of your time, talent, and treasure uh, in response to the way that Christ has given to us. So James is warning us, plans that are too sure, plans that are too selfish. And then lastly, this morning, James says, look out for plans that are too small. Too small. You know, the American dream seems so great. It seems so big. <laughs> when you look at the scriptures, you realize it's far too small because as I said, we're living for a kingdom that will not last. We think we got big dreams because we, we dream of a big house in the country or a loft in the city and 2.5 kids and a dog and all these sort of things. And, our, and we have all these sort of dreams. But what the Bible reveals to us is that our dreams are too small. We're not aiming for things that are too big. We're aiming for things that are too small. And our dreams are too small because our desires are too small. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he said this about our desires. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, which means vacation, a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased.
What he's saying is that we're chasing after things that are too small. Our dreams are too small. Our plans are too small. If your dream is just to have X amount of money in your retirement account when you retire, it's too small. Your dream's too small. If your dream is just to be healthy and to live as long as you can, your dream is too small. Because God wants to give you a bigger dream. He wants to give you his dream for your life. That you would make a difference. That people would know Jesus because of you. That people would follow Jesus alongside of you. That you'd leave a legacy. That you would live on mission. A couple weeks ago, my family and I were in Florida and we were walking around Magic Kingdom. And I was walking around Disney and all I could think about was the imagination of human beings that went into creating that place. It's incredible. In Animal Kingdom, there's a whole world based on the movie Avatar. It's a made-up world with made-up language and, and all. And it's just, it's breathtaking. And I just was looking at everything and I was thinking, the, imagina the imagination of people, what we can dream up. And then I thought of this verse in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says, Now to him, speaking of God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all you can ask, think, or imagine. You may have a great imagination. You may have great dreams for your life. But listen, God has bigger dreams for your life. He has bigger plans for you. He didn't put you on this earth to have a good job, to get a good paycheck, to retire to Florida someday. God bless Florida and it's good weather. But that's not why he puts you on this earth. God puts you on this earth to bear his image, to extend his reign and rule, to see his glory manifest in your life and in the lives of other people. God puts you on this earth to live on mission. And so if your only goal is to graduate from high school or to graduate from college or get a good job or meet a special woman or have children, those are all fine things, but your plans are too small. God has bigger, greater plans for your life and dreams for your life. He wants to do things in you and through you that will last into eternity and not just here and now. How do we find the power to trust God's will? Well, we look at Jesus. You probably know this story. The night before Jesus crucified, he walks into the garden and he's struggling because he knows what's before him. And he says to his father, Father, if there's any other way, if I can rescue and save these people, and it doesn't involve going to the cross, being abandoned on the cross, bearing the sin, shame, guilt, and sickness of all people of all time, if there's any other way, if there's another plan, Let's hear it. Then he says this, but God, not my will, but your will be done. The beginning of the scriptures, Adam and Eve failed their test in the garden. They failed their test in the garden, and it gets us into this mess. But that night, Jesus Christ passed his test in the garden, and it gets us out of this. How? Because Jesus learned to pray like you and I need to learn to pray. God, not my will but your will be done. We learn to trust God, that he sees, that he knows, that he cares. And if we could see what he sees, and if we knew what he knows, and if, then we would choose what he chooses. There's this powerful poem I came across this week. They don't know who wrote it. It was popularized by Corey Ten Boom, who is the author of The Hiding Place, a Dutch watchmaker who hid many Jews during the Holocaust, saving their lives. It's about a weaver. It uses the metaphor of a weaving. And this is how it reads. It says, My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. 
Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives his very best to those who leave the choice to him. On this side of eternity, we see the underside of the tapestry. Have you ever seen the underneath of an oriental rug? It's not beautiful. Those are not reversible. You can't use them in both directions. You can't even see the pattern sometimes on the other side. And I think on this side of eternity, we're trying to understand God's will, and we're seeing the underside. God, I don't see the pattern. I don't see what you're doing. It's not beautiful. But the moment we step from this life to the next, we're going to be on the other side of that tapestry. And we're going to look back, and it's going to take our breath away. And we're going to see the beauty of his plan, the beauty of his purposes, the perfection of his will. And when we see the canvas rolled out, then we'll understand why. We don't understand why. How many of you say, I don't understand there's things in my life I don't, I get it. I don't understand why. What do we do with that? It's a constant reminder. Don't trust in your plans. Plans that are too sure, too selfish, too small. But trust in God. Trust in his plans. We make our plans, but we trust his will. Let's pray together this morning. Just take a moment in your seat. Think about a situation in your life that is bringing stress to you. Uh, you've been worried about it, anxious about it. It could be a health issue, a relationship, a family member, a job issue, your past, your future. We all have probably a bunch, but think of one or two. And as you think about it, I just want to encourage you right now in your heart to simply pray this prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. For that person that I love so much, not my will, but your will. For my career path, not my will, but your will. For my future, not my will, but your will. For that broken relationship, not my will, but your will. For the health challenges you're facing, not my will, but your will, God. Teach us to trust and rest in you. And you give us grace. So much grace. We thank you.